The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Thursday, June 4th, 2014. From Slate, it's the Gist. Lithuania will start using the euro next year. Lithuania has qualified. Lithuania is inside the velvet ropes, and it could now bask in the eurozones, underemployment and deflation, and other economic conditions with downer prefixes, like non-optimism or A-hope. But Lithuania, I've always been a little disappointed with Lithuania's flag. So come with me now to Vexillology Corner. This will be a mini Vexillology Corner. I'm going to do bigger discussions of flags on future gists. But now let's talk about Lithuania's flag. It's yellow, green, and red. Almost every other yellow, green, and red flag, like Benin, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Congo, Mali, Senegal, they're African. So to me, yellow, green, and red doesn't say Eastern Europe. Plus, it's the only yellow, green, and red tricolor where the red touches the green. I don't like that because if you block out the top yellow stripe, You've got Christmas. And if you block out the bottom red stripe, it's Seattle Supersonics. And then there's the fact that green and red to the colorblind, those are the hardest colors to tell apart. Not, not kind to them. Yet I was thrilled to discover that there's an alt flag based on the coat of arms for Lithuania that's really cool. The design is a little complex for a national flag. Well, here's the description. A knight armed Kappa P mounted on a horse salient argent, brandishing a sword proper and maintaining a shield azure charged with a cross of Lorraine Orr. You speak heraldry, right? You can see it right now in your mind. It's a kick-ass knight armed head to toe. That's Kappa P. And he's charging. His spurs are a brilliant yellow, not the slushy, sallow yellow of the flag, the yellow of his shield and scabbard. It's gold. It's gold, Jersey, gold. And this guy is called Vitas. Vitas means the chaser, as in he's chasing bad dudes out of Lithuania. Or in the case of my particular great-great-granduncle Schmirky, chasing bespeckled Jews out of Lithuania. It happened. But the Vitas, like Vitas Gerolitis, a famous Lithuanian, is bold. So good luck, Lithuania, as you adopt the euro. And here's hoping that in the spirit of Vitas, you chase prosperity and it yields riches enough to keep your flags from flagging. Speaking of monetary decisions, on the gist today, we'll do a post-prudence impact statement with Emily Yaffe. The issue, should I go into deep debt to send my son to an expensive college? And in the spiel, my thoughts on eulogies and uncle-lessness. But first, Adam Davidson and I talk about tomorrow's unemployment numbers. Yeah, they're coming out, and you're going to get a jump on them now. Do we know what these unemployment numbers will be? We do not, but we do know that they'll be criticized. So I'm on the website for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it says this. Next release, the employment situation for May 2014, is scheduled to be released on June 6th, 2014 at 8.30 a.m. So we're here to give you a preview, and I cannot tell you what the unemployment rate's going to be, but I will tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're going to hear a number in the news, a percentage, the percentage of the workforce that's unemployed. And then everyone is going to come and complain that this does not include people who've dropped out of the labor force, that it doesn't include people who've given up. In fact, this is a very bad statistic. So my question is, why do we keep using this extremely inexact statistic that the moment you mention it comes with a raft of caveats? Here on a raft from NPR's Planet Money, where he was the founder, is Adam Davidson. Hello, Adam. 
Hey, Mike. Hi. Why do we love this unemployment number if the moment you say it, you have to say, oh, and here's what's bad with this unemployment number? So there are two numbers that come out on Jobs Fridays. One is the unemployment rate. The other is uh, the change in the civilian labor force, the non-farm payroll number you hear about. Uh, And those are the result of two different surveys. So sometimes you'll see the number of jobs go up, but the unemployment rate also go up, and it can be confusing. So when you look at the change in the number of jobs, lately it's been at or around 100,000 which is nothing. We are an economy of over 150 million jobs that in any given month, there are millions of new jobs added, millions of jobs lost. There's huge sectors of our economy where people are kind of bouncing in and out of the workforce all the time. So 100,000 is just noise. If you had a million dollars and you lost 100 bucks, you just it wouldn't be a big deal, right. you know, or if you counted a million dollars in ones and you were off by a hundred bucks, you wouldn't, you'd think you did a pretty good job. Yeah. And generally that number is revised several times and it can be revised <laughs> substantially. Not only is it almost irrelevant, it's probably not right. It's yeah. definitely not right. <laughs> okay, There's no right. possible way it's right. Yeah. The margin of error is generally bigger than the number itself. It's yeah. bigger than the than 100,000. It's often corrected by more than 100,000. So yes, d- looking at any one Friday's results is close to irrelevant. It's an absurdity. So why do we use it? We use it because it probably is the least bad number. If you want to talk about GDP, even more flawed and difficult and arbitrary number in many ways that where the government has to make all sorts of decisions in in choosing what to count, what not to count. My personal pet peeve is I think the news media uses the Dow Jones Industrial Average as if it's some kind of, it's not even a great measure of the stock market. Right. It's not even a measure of the industrial average. I guess the appeal of using the unemployment rate is, you know, that we've always used the unemployment rate. So if we said in 2004, it was 5%, and then 2007, it was 4%. But then in 2009, it was 9%. And now it's around 6%. Does that tell us something? It seems like it tells us something. It tells us a lot. Yeah. And that's why it's important. Yeah. It tells you more when you look at like rolling averages. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what are the averages over the last several months or, or last few years like that, you learn an awful lot. If I can give you just some very quick history. Yeah. So, so up until the 1930s, people really didn't think about there being an economy. It's actually kind of a weird idea. Like, you had a job or you didn't have a job. There wasn't this idea of the economy being something that could be studied or measured or messed around with. And then uh, John Maynard Keynes and others came up with this idea that, oh, yes, there's this just lots of people doing lots of business, selling plywood or stocks or, you know, hosting radio shows or whatever. But there's this other force called the economy that impacts how many people have jobs. And and we could actually impact that in turn. And so we have to start measuring that. And it's still a, a relatively fresh idea, relatively new idea. But in times like this, we feel it so acutely. It mm-hmm. feels like this thing called the economy controls our lives in very powerful ways. And the reason unemployment has turned out to be so important is because it has a huge impact on a whole bunch of other aspects of how the economy feels. So when the employment rate goes very high, economists used to say above 10 percent, but now it seems like more like 6 or 7 or 8 percent. 
it doesn't just affect that large number of people who are out of work. It also affects everybody who has a job. The higher the unemployment rate is, the more anxious you are, the more likely you are to stay in a job you don't like that much, uh, the less likely you are to ask for a raise. It has a huge impact on what the government feels they can do to interfere with the economy, to improve the economy. So when unemployment is, say, at 4.5% or lower, the Federal Reserve starts getting very nervous that anything they do to push the economy forward to increase growth will bump up against inflation. So, so the employment rate is central to the kind of macroeconomic theories that determine right. what the government can do. They call it headroom. The simple idea is is 4.5% is considered something close to full employment, meaning everybody who wants a job has a job. Well, what about that four and a half percent? It's called friction. There are, you know, people who quit one job and they're right. waiting a week. There are to... many more jobs than there are people to fill jobs, even when it shows that there's four percent unemployed. Then, right. Yeah. So if the government then does stimulative things like print more money, the idea is it won't create new jobs. It'll just bid up the price on jobs. It'll cause inflation. Mm-hmm. It'll it'll yeah. make the situation worse. So you see this paradoxical thing where the unemployment rate goes up and instantly the stock market responds like, that's great news. The unemployment rate is now higher because they know, oh, the Fed's going to keep pumping money. That's going to be good for lots of companies in America. Taking the best stats out there, is the economy doing better? Is the employment situation getting any better? The employment situation is definitely getting better better than it was, and it's definitely much, much, much worse than it has been uh, previously than it should be. I I think the deep question right now is, are we facing a structural change in which we're just going to be a country where lots more people don't find a fit in the economy, whether that means they just can't find a job at all, or they have to work in a job that doesn't pay what they feel they deserve or doesn't make them happy? And that's clearly true now. There's no question that that's true now and that there's lots of people who aren't even bothering looking for work. And so the deep question is, is that just a permanent condition? And it probably is for some chunk of Americans. It almost certainly is for some chunk of Americans. If, if you dig deeper in the numbers, you see people with college degrees are you know, pretty close to full employment, pretty close to that. I think they're at that 4.5% unemployment rate. People with advanced degrees, like engineers and stuff, they're like at 2% unemployment, which is like theoretically impossible, like 1.7% or something. I forget the exact numbers. Um, But at-risk people, minority men uh, without a high school degree, you know, you see really Great Depression era unemployment rates. You see them living in a fundamentally different economy than other people. And that does seem to be a a permanent condition. That might get a little bit better on the margin, but that's very, very scary. Adam Davidson, who usually leaves us with these moments of great optimism, who's the founder of NPR's Planet Money. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And we are sponsored by Squarespace, and we thank them for sponsoring us. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout. It's drag and drop. So whatever you think your website should be, it's really easy to execute on Squarespace. It's simple. It's really quite beautiful. And let's say you're having a problem. They have people standing by, standing by in the fine 
world cities, world capitals of New York City and Dublin. Don't you, I mean, I don't want to advocate this, but let's say you're using Squarespace and things are going really well, but you just want to talk to someone in Dublin. You know what? They'll humor you with that. You can start a trial with no credit card required, and you can start building your website today. And when you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, again, remember the offer code GIST at checkout. You get 10% off to show your support for us, the GIST. And we want to thank Squarespace for sponsoring the GIST. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Like Jehovah Witness brochures, advice is more often given than taken. Which brings us to Dear Prudence. She is Emily Yaffe. Dear Prudence is our advice column here at Slate. Emily plays the role of Prudence. Hello, Emily. Hi. Hi. So you advise the forsaken, the forlorn, and the foreign legion members who write into you. Maybe they take the advice, maybe they don't. That's why we have to conduct one of these a Prudence Advisee Impact Statement. Well, who do you got today, Emily? Today's letter is from a woman called Best Degree. Mm-hmm. It's a timely letter. She writes in that uh, she and her husband have two kids, have not been able to save a penny to put the kids through college. Her older son went to community college. Her younger son applied to a private college, the school of his dreams, and got in. Mm. But God forbid he goes because uh, the four years, even with some scholarship help would cost $120,000. She wants him to go to their state university, which she said is very highly ranked, but would like him to start by living at home for two years, going to a satellite campus, then ultimately transferring. However, family members are saying, how can you crush your son's dream and opportunity? Uh, Let him go to the private college and figure out a way to make it work. So what skills did you call upon in yourself to answer this question? Actually, this is a timely letter for me. I have a daughter who's going to college in the fall. So I'm slight, you know, I'm somewhat up on what this means and have looked into uh, what college debt means. So I, you know, I can't give Pell Grant advice, right? uh, but I can respond kind of globally about what it means to take on this kind of debt. You know, this discussion feels right out of like the early 80s for me, at least. I used to listen to Howard Stern when I was, you know, 11 years old. And he would always say that when he was growing up, his generation, the deal the parents would offer Howard Stern's generation when they were going to college is this. We'll either send you to a college for four years or you could go to Nassau Community College and we'll give you a car. (laughs) So how has the conversation about the cost of college changed? Instead of being the college of your dreams, going to the college of your dreams ends up crushing your dreams. Uh, College debt is now greater than credit card debt. And unlike credit card debt, if you really get in over your head, you can declare bankruptcy and discharge it. You can never discharge this college debt or, you know, you, you have to pay it off for 30 years or whatever. And people aren't getting married. People aren't buying homes because they're riding with this debt. You know, every part of me wants to say, you got into your dream school, go to your dream school. But I ended up telling this mother, what you do is you go to the best school you can afford. I said, can the dream school. All right, let's call best degree. So best, did you take my advice? 
I took most of your advice. He is going to the state school, but unfortunately, he did not get into the main campus where you can live on campus. Mm -hmm. So his only choice, if he wants to go to that school, is to go to a satellite campus. Mm. Pretty much it's a two-year program there, and then they move to the main campus in two years. Okay. So the heart of the problem that you wrote in was that uh, your family members were saying, send him to the private school of his dreams. He got in. Just make him work. How can you crush this boy? So how did this go with your son, this decision? How did this go with the family members? How Um, hard has this been? The family members, I mean, they didn't say anything more to us. At least my husband hasn't said anything. It was his family member, his his parents that made the comment. (laughs) Um, So if they've talked about it, my husband hasn't shared it with me, probably for the best. He was very disappointed. But I could not saddle him with $120,000 in debt plus interest. I mean, you know, we're in our 50s. We're not in a position to take on that kind of debt. And did you explain it to him as a financial choice? And did he come around to thinking of it like that? Because I'm sure it's hard not to see that as an emotional choice. I think part of it was he had in his mind the level of school he wanted to go to and he didn't really apply to enough of them because maybe somebody else would have given him a better deal yeah this is what we call life lesson right (laughs) it it is a life lesson yeah i mean i think he could have made better decisions about where he wanted to apply to we tried to push him but anybody who has a 17 year old knows you can't push them Okay, so best degree. My question to you is how much did Emily's advice uh, influence your decision? It reinforced my decision, I would say. By the time I saw it online, we had pretty much made a decision that we were not going to sign these papers for him. Well, best degree. Good luck to you and your son, and thanks for playing the game. Thanks for uh, taking our call. Take care. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye. I think that went well. It's kind of unlike unlike our last call where things oh, worked yeah. out for him, but he didn't take your advice. It's kind of nice when they take your advice, right? Well, you know, she made a point, and I think this is true of a lot of people who write to me. They're not really writing for my advice. They're writing for someone else to give them permission to do what they really want to do. All right. Emily Yaffe is Prudence. She writes the Dear Prudence column. She comes on for a post-prudence impact statement. Thank you, Emily. My pleasure. And now the spiel. My uncle died a couple of days ago. I am all out of uncles. The cosmos has rendered me unavuncled. I haven't exactly decided how personal of a show to make the gist. My friend Luke Burbank hosts a podcast called TBTL, and his theory is that his podcast is the ongoing story of his life, and the audience will be hooked, and they'll be compelled to listen. And people tell me, by the way, that's exactly how TBTL works for them. But I like, or at least I'm comfortable with more of the idea of distance. So I wanted to talk about a couple of the things I've been thinking about as I process my current state of uncle-lessness. In the specific, my uncle was a former cop 
and a former prison guard, which meant I essentially had a get-out-of-jury-duty-free card. Defense attorneys were quite hesitant to put someone like me, who they imagined grew up on tales of wanton criminality, put me on a jury. And if that didn't work, I could always say I work for NPR and the prosecutor would be spooked. My uncle was a really strong guy. He's a really competent guy who, for a time, trained the Suffolk County Police Force, trained their motorcycle unit. And uh, before that, he was a member of the 101st Airborne Division. I went to Fort Campbell in Kentucky once and did a story there for about a week. I was proud to have that familial connection. But most of what I've been thinking about is not about my uncle. It's more global. I've been thinking about eulogies. Eulogies are not actually words for the dead or speeches at funerals. There's a different word for that, and that word is elegy. Probably because the words are so close in sound as well as meaning they get confused. But eulogies originally meant just a speech of praise. It's a shame that eulogies are mostly reserved for funerals. So I have a strategy for eulogizing the living, which makes it sound like I'm about to deliver a big speech. And every once in a while, yeah, you get a chance at oratory and you get an opportunity to do that in a more formal setting. But I'm talking about the secret subtle eulogy gambit. Here's how it works. The next time you're talking to a relative, maybe an older relative, could be anyone though. You don't make a big deal of it. And you don't say, I want to tell you something. You just start a sentence very quickly with the words, The great thing about you is, or the thing you do that I always liked was, and then you tell them directly, not in a flowery or obvious way, the sort of thing that would be said if you were formally orating in a eulogy. And, you know, think about it. That's one of the most common things said at a funeral. She really would have loved to hear that. Well, this is a way to let her hear that. Funerals, it seems, are one of the only times as a society that we do a couple of good and necessary things. We speak words of seriousness. We find the worth in people. We tell a story. Writing and delivering a funeral speech is authoring a biography. We're forced to think about a person and the person's place in the world and what the world means now without the person. But other times I have found that there's a sort of heightened feeling after you attend a funeral of a person who you're sad to see go, who you liked or maybe loved. You're in a more acute state for the rest of the day. Mundane things take on significance. What might normally be a perfunctory kindness is taken to heart. Sentiment comes easier. Children are more precious. Hack movie directors always set their funerals in the rain because, you know, the sky is crying or something. That's why they're hack directors. But I don't need that. I usually just always feel a change in the barometer after a funeral. I wouldn't want to permanently live in that feeling, but to live with that feeling for a little while to get a break from cursing the bus for being five minutes late or the Wi-Fi for kicking you offline or all the nonsense that tends to overwhelm us. Look, it's a sad, sad thing when a loved one leaves us. It's sadder still for the people that they were closest to. But funerals at their best can be rare and genuine moments of humanity. A eulogy can uplift, it can inspire us, it can tie us together. And if you try that secret, subtle eulogy gambit, you might get a chance to gauge the reaction of the person you're eulogizing. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi 
has transitioned from discouraged to fully employed as producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers has gone from employment to discouraged to marginally attached back to employment in the position of executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Since I began to mention subscribing to us directly instead of just waiting for the Slate Daily feed, there's been a difference in the iTunes rankings. And this is not for us to try to game the system. It's to give an honest appraisal of where we should be ranked. So the upshot of all this is, if you listen and like us and would like to help, go to iTunes and subscribe to the gist directly and give us a review. We have an email that we could send to you, tell you when the gist is up, and you can play the show right from there. It's at slate.com slash gist email. Email us at thegist at slate.com. A plug for yesterday's show. Yesterday, I read two paragraphs. One was full of Republican phrases, and one was full of phrases more often said by Democrats. And we asked you to guess which was which and why. I will reveal the results tomorrow, but if you missed it, go ahead, listen, tweet us your guesses. And may I suggest a meatball sandwich, specifically a hand-ground New Zealand lamb shoulder and San Marzano tomatoes on toasted brioche smothered in a bubbling aged fontina. I was recently compared to that. Compliment? Thanks for listening.